Thank you. For 1 Kings 18, 17 through 40. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bowls be given to us, and let them choose one bowl for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire in it. And I will prepare the other bowl, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bowl, and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the altar. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering, and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, thank you uh, to our 
readers and our prayers. I don't at this moment know who they are, so I apologize, but I'm sure they did a fantastic job. All right, uh, two weeks ago, we uh, saw how uh, after Israel had completely rejected God and uh, replaced him with Baalism as their official state religion, uh, the Lord pronounced a drought that would last as long as his word was absent from Israel. And then last week, uh, we saw how God took Elijah, who was the human representative of his word, and hid him away in the mountains. There he prepared Elijah uh, to minister to and to be cared for by the widow of Zarephath, which we saw last week. And, and while in Zarephath, God reminded Elijah of the scope of his covenant and how his people were supposed to function by spreading the blessing of God's presence and provision outwards to the, to the other nations. Right? And when we left off, Elijah was uh, living day to day from the hand of God with the widow and her son. And now this morning, we've, we've skipped over a small chunk at the beginning of chapter 18 in the interest of time, but I'll give you the Coles notes. Um, in the third year of the drought, the word of, God, uh, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah again in Zarephath and says, uh, the time has finally come. God says, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. And so Elijah leaves Zarephath and heads back towards Israel. And when he gets there, Elijah first meets a man named Obadiah in the wilderness. And we learn that Obadiah is one of Ahab's right-hand men. Uh, the text describes him as being a man over Ahab's house. Um, and we also learn that he has been faithful to the Lord this entire time, though in secret. Um, he tells Elijah that when Jezebel was slaughtering all of the prophets of God, he managed to save a hundred of them and hide them away in caves. And he's been uh, feeding them and caring for them all this time. And now understand that during a severe drought or famine, when uh, strict rations were likely in place, this would only have been possible for someone with unquestioned access to the kingdom's resources. So this is a glimmer of hope that God has been preserving uh, some of the covenant infrastructure for his people. Um, it's a glimmer of hope that, God, uh, that God's people can, in fact, be restored to him. God has been doing covert, behind-the-scenes work this entire time uh, to ensure the possibility of repentance and reconciliation for his people. You see, here we get a clear example of how the grand narrative of redemption uh, that spans all of history is sovereignly administered by the one true God. And this is the setup for our text today. All right, so Obadiah facilitates a meeting between Elijah and Ahab, and that is where our text picks up in the narrative. All right, we pick it up. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, O troubler, you troubler of Israel? And so this is a bit of humor on the author's part, but there's also tragedy in it. See, Ahab is presented here. He's, he's so thick-headed. He's such a buffoon that 
although he's had three and a half years to think about it, he still doesn't understand that this drought has been the direct consequences of his actions, right? He was the king over God's people. He was the one who was supposed to lead the people in preserving and obeying the word of God. But he himself clearly does not know a word of it. And Elijah is happy to point out the irony, right? Verse 18, I have not troubled Israel, he says, uh, but you have, you and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, I want us to look at Ahab's reaction to this, or at least maybe his lack of reaction would be the better way of putting it. Ahab seems to be taken aback by this information, You see, he's been trying to kill Elijah. He's been hunting him for three and a half years. Now he has him all alone in the wilderness. I'm certain that if Ahab had not been at least a little bit convicted by Elijah's words, he would have happily killed him right then and there. But instead, he becomes compliant to Elijah. Elijah orders him to gather all the people of Israel and all the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, And he obeys without question. And so the Lord begins setting the stage for what is going to be an epic battle of the gods. There is only one God in Israel, and he does not share his throne. That is the lesson that today the hard-hearted and seemingly even more hard-headed Israelite people are finally going to learn. All right. Verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Elijah makes it clear that God detests double-mindedness. You don't get to sit on the fence You don't get to hedge your bets. You don't get to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. You are either in or you're out. Jesus says something similar in his letter to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3. He says this, he says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Ouch. But he goes on. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous to repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And the Lord is knocking at Israel's door in a big way in our text today. Will they hear it? Will they answer it? Maybe the Lord has been knocking at your door too. Maybe he's been trying to get your attention, to warn you that you need to make a move. Maybe he's been asking you to invite him in for the first time. This is a warning in love because the offer is genuine, but it is also time limited. If the Lord is God, then follow him. All right? 
So now we get to the juicy stuff in the text. Elijah basically says, um, in case you're still on the fence about who the real God is, let's let them speak for themselves. And this is probably one of the coolest and most well-known stories in the whole Old Testament. It's, it's right up there with the flood and uh, the exodus and David and Goliath. Um, but even though many of us know the details of the event, right, we know ultimately what's going to happen, uh, many of us don't actually understand the full significance of it. And so uh, we're going to do a close reading of it today, and I hope that we will all see that, um, as is usually the case with the Bible, there's a lot more going on here than, than, than first meets the eye, right? This is not just God proving that he's more powerful than Baal. All right, so Elijah tells him to gather two bowls and all the necessary elements for a burnt offering except the fire, right? And the test is simple. He says that they'll both prepare a sacrifice and pray to their respective gods and uh, the God who provides, uh, or sorry, and they'll both pray to their respective gods to provide the fire for the offering. And now notice in this that Elijah makes a painful dig at the people of Israel. Verse 24, he says, uh, where am I? Oh, there we go. You call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And he's talking to Israel. In the following verse, he's going to address the prophets of Baal. But at this point, he's talking to Israel, and he says, You call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. These are the people of Israel. These are the people whose very identity is supposed to be uh, built around their relationship to their God. And Elijah says, no, you chose Baal. He's the one you've been following, now own it. You don't get to have it both ways. And like Ahab, notice that the people don't respond in anger. They don't push back at all. The author seems to be communicating that Either they agree with Elijah's assessment and don't have a problem with being called Baal's people, or they have been cut deeply by the truth of his words and are being prepared to repent. Only time will tell. But Elijah goes on, right? He says, you call upon the name of your God, I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Fair enough? And all the people agree to the terms of the contest. And then Elijah, in good sportsmanship, he instructs the 450 bales to pick the best bull and go first. And we see here that the author is taking great pains uh, to point out that Baal is being given every advantage in this showdown. All right. Geographically speaking, Mount Carmel is the westernmost point in Israel. It is a cliff face that juts out into the Mediterranean Sea. And it was considered an important religious site for the Canaanites. And as one of those um, well-known, well-documented high places for the worship of Baal. And so you could say that Baal has home court advantage, right? He also has 450 priests to persuade him while Elijah is operating alone. And now Baal gets the first choice bull and they get to go first. All right, so the day is young and full of expectation. Verse 26 tells us that they, the prophets of Baal, called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. They've been at it for hours, and they're starting to get tired, right? That says that 
Verse 26 says that they limped around the altar. But Elijah doesn't want the show to end just yet, right? He wants this dragged out as long as possible because every minute that passes without a response is another strike against Baal's reputation. And so he begins taunting them and goading them to get them fired up. Verse 27, he says, cry louder, for he is a God. Right? Notice he says he is a God. He doesn't say he is God. Again, last week I mentioned that the pagan gods are not like the God of Israel at all. Because they are deities made in the image of man rather than the other way around, they have all the character traits and limitations of humans. They're just more powerful. And so Elijah suggests that perhaps Baal just can't hear them. He goes on in verse 27, either he is musing or he's relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. (laughs) And the author is having a lot of fun with this at this point, right? Cry louder. Maybe he's deep in thought, right? (laughs) Because Baal is not omniscient, he cannot divide his attention like God can. Maybe he is relieving himself. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Or maybe he's out running an errand, right? Because Baal is not omnipresent. He cannot be in more place, uh, in more than one place at a time, like God can. And maybe he's taking a nap. Because Baal is not omnipotent, his strength runs out and he needs to recharge, unlike God. And at least three of Elijah's suggestions can be found in what has been preserved of the ancient uh, mythology of Baal. And so he isn't just making this stuff up. Um, these, these suggestions, these uh, images of things that Baal would do was in their mythology. So this would have been familiar to them. But I imagine that these suggestions would have been dripping with sarcasm. And apparently Elijah's mocking actually got to them because... Uh, the prophets of Baal whipped themselves into a frenzy for another three hours, right? They began cutting themselves and spilling their own blood in an effort to get Baal to notice them as though he's a, he's a shark smelling blood in the water. Verse 29. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Uh, the offering of the oblation, this would have been the cu- customary time of the evening sacrifice. It would have been 3, 3 p.m. So the prophets of Baal have been praying and dancing and cutting themselves from first thing in the morning until mid-afternoon, and they have completely run out of steam. And so far, the response has been crickets. Baal is nowhere to be found. Finally, now, it's the Lord's turn. So Elijah tells the people of Israel to gather around and pay close attention to what he does next. And so we will as well. Verses uh, 30b to 32a say that he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Now don't brush past this. There had been a previous altar to the God of Israel at this spot, but it had been torn down. 
in exactly the way that Israel had been charged to tear down the altars and high places of the Canaanites when they entered the land. Things are the exact opposite of what they should be, right? And this broken down altar stands as a monument to Israel's failure to carry out the commands of the Lord. But now Elijah painstakingly rebuilds it using 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel, reminding them where their name came from. And I mentioned in one of the previous weeks that names are highly significant in the Hebrew tradition, and so is the act of naming. They had been named by God, which means that they had been specifically claimed and set apart for God. And before he brings them out of Egypt in the miraculous Exodus, God is telling Moses what he's up to. In Exodus 6, he says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Sorry. God chose them, not the other way around. And so this altar, this new rebuilt altar of 12 stones is a physical representation of the people of Israel. Next, Elijah digs a deep trench around the altar and arranges the pieces of bowl on the wood. Now, we saw earlier how Baal has gotten all of the advantages up until this point and still didn't answer. But if that wasn't enough, now to add to the drama, Elijah intentionally further disadvantages the Lord, it seems. Verses 33 to 35, he says, um, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Now, I'm no expert but I'm pretty sure that if you wanted to start a fire, this was the wrong way to do it, right? But this too is symbolic. Four jars poured out three times. That's 12 jars of water dousing the sacrifice. 12 stones, 12 jars. The entirety of the people of God were represented in these as well. Why? Just as in their sin and idolatry, they had done everything humanly possible to separate themselves from their God, the water douses the altar, making it humanly impossible to make a proper sacrifice pleasing to the Lord and atoning for their sin. They can do nothing to fix their situation for themselves. They are utterly at the mercy of God. And again, in verse 36, we read that this is the time of the offering of the oblation. And that, uh, the offering of the oblation denotes a specific type of sin offering where the entire sacrifice must be burned up, skin, bones, and all. All right, so it's not looking good for Israel. But then Elijah praise. Verse 36. Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, 
Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah prays that God would make it known that he alone is Israel's God. And he also prays that God would make it known that Elijah is his appointed prophet acting on behalf of his word. And he prays that Israel would know through this that God alone can and has turned their hearts back to him. And the Lord answers in spectacular fashion. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. God didn't just send a spark to simply ignite the offering, nor did he send just enough fire to consume the bull. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed everything. The bowl, the wood, even the stones, and the water. Nothing remains but a scorched patch of earth. And in the Old Testament, God is represented by fire to display his holiness. And you do not mess around with the holy God. Time and time again, we see examples of the fire of the Lord consuming people who transgress his laws. In Numbers 11, the people are in the desert and they're complaining. They wish they could go back to Egypt because at least they had a variety of foods to eat. They were getting sick of manna. And they're grumbling against the Lord and his anger was kindled. And it says the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to, them, to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. And then in Leviticus, we see an example of uh, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They're priests, and they go into the holy place to uh, do their job. But apparently, they were really sloppy about it, and they, they offered something that the Bible translates as strange fire or unauthorized fire before the Lord. Um, it says, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Hmm? There you go. To be utterly consumed by the fire of the Lord is symbolic of God's holy wrath against human sinfulness. This is a just and proportionate response to our sin against the holy God. So what has just happened here at the altar on Mount Carmel? The altar which was the representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, of God's people, acted as their substitute. The holy wrath of God, his just judgment against their faithlessness and idolatry was poured out on this substitute, utterly consuming it. But what else is consumed in the process? The water, right? The symbol of their sin against God had also been utterly removed. This is an incredible foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like the altar, 
Jesus as our representative, our substitute, had the full measure of God's wrath against our sin poured out on him. As Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 53, he says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And there's no question that the people of Israel understand the significance of this moment. Verse 39, we see how they react. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, this The Lord, sorry, he is God. The Lord, he is God. But then we come to verse 40. Verse 40 says this. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now, at a first glance, this sort of seems like a distasteful and unnecessary detail, at least to modern eyes and ears. But this is very much like the final chapter, sorry, or the final verse of chapter 16, for those of you who listened to the first sermon in the series. Remember, that text was all about uh, Ahab and how badly he was leading the kingdom away from God. And then verse 34 comes along. And it's about a man named Heal rebuilding the walls of Jericho at the cost of his children. There the author was illustrating the rotting fruit of God's people having forgotten him in his words. Likewise, here, the author is illustrating a return to obedience to God's word. There were no questions remaining about who the real God was. Now, Elijah's earlier charge from verse 21 must be fulfilled. If the Lord is God, then follow him. And so in order to understand what's happening here, we have to yet again go back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 13. This again, Moses preparing the people to enter the land, telling them how they are to live. These are God's commands for them. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and that sign or wonder, uh, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If the people of God are finally going to follow him and obey his commands, they must purge these false prophets from their midst. And so they line them up on the banks of the Wadi Kishon and execute them there. But why there? Even in this, 
God is teaching his people about his covenant faithfulness and provision. This is an act of faith that God is going to restore rain to the land just as he has restored his people to himself. Only he can do it. And after three and a half years of drought, the mighty Kishon would have been reduced to a trickle, if anything at all, in the midst of a deep cut through the seaside mountains. And what happens in that region of the world, even to this very day, is that when the first rains come after the dry seasons, the water rushes over the concrete hard ground, starting in the inland mountain ranges, and then across the plains towards the Mediterranean Sea. And this causes incredibly violent flash floods. All right, and they tear through the lowland wadis. Massive walls of water pick up everything in their path and wash it out to sea. Every year, people die getting caught off guard in these flash floods. So rain is coming. And that rain is symbolic in two ways. It is both the symbol of the restoration of God's presence and provision among his people, the renewal of covenant life, but it is also symbolic of cleansing. Just as God had poured out his wrath on the substitute altar and consumed even the reminder of Israel's sin against him there, so too, when he sends his rain on the lands, God is going to cleanse the land of any memory of their sin. He's going to wash any memory of Israel's rebellion against him from the face of the earth. The breathtaking scope of the faithfulness of God is on full display in this text. The benediction text that I read to you last week was from 1 Thessalonians 5. It says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You see, more than anything else in the entire world, this is what you and I need. We need to be given new life and we need to be cleansed from our sin. And we are utterly helpless to do these things for ourselves. Only the one true God can do this. And he has, he has accomplished it all in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Elijah's challenge still echoes today to you and to me. If the Lord is God, and he surely is, then follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good and so faithful to us. Even when our hearts wander from you and we act as though you are not God, you call us back with the sweetness of your gospel making every provision necessary for us to stand before you as your beloved children. Your grace and your mercy toward us is unfathomable. You are so unlike us, and so God, we praise you for your holiness.
And we bow before you saying, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, you alone are God. In the precious name of our Savior, Jesus, we pray. Amen.